This is the Future of HR Podcast, Episode 68. Hey there, and welcome to the best of 2023 episode on the Future of HR Podcast. Before I get into who you can expect to learn from this episode, I want to take a moment to highlight what was an incredible year for the Future of HR Podcast. We crossed over 100,000 downloads. That is incredible and something I never imagined when I first started the podcast. We have over 6,000 followers on LinkedIn. And personally, I have strengthened so many existing relationships and built so many amazing new ones that I am just thankful for each and every one of the guests who've been on the podcast and all their support. And most importantly, thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for your emails, your messages on LinkedIn, your reviews on Apple and Spotify podcasts. It means a ton to me. It helps me keep going. And I want to make sure that 2024 is even better. So please share this episode with at least one of the person and tell them why the Future of HR podcast is one of the best, if not the best HR podcast out there. And as you can imagine, selecting the best of the episodes and moments from 2023 was an almost impossible task. We had so many amazing guests that in the end, I had to make some tough judgment calls. I did look at total downloads. I reflect on the episodes where I received lots of emails and lots of comments on LinkedIn. And while I tried to be objective, I also want to be sure that the episodes represented the amazing mix of talent and thought leadership that we had on the podcast in 2023. So who can you expect to hear from today? Lisa Buckingham, Dave Ulrich, Matt Breitfelder, Miriam Ork, Sam Hammock, Ola Snow, Andre Martin, Tammy Rosen, Jay Parker, Terry Friedman, Matt Abrams, Mita Malik, Nick Bloom, Ann Gotti, Joe Garbus, Peter Block, and Chris Scalia. First up is the amazing Lisa Buckingham, who's one of the best and most beloved HR leaders in the business. In episode 19, HR Outside the Box, Lisa shares keys to success to influencing your business leaders. Talk to us more about what are the keys to success to having influence as an HR leader? Is there a recipe for it or? Uh, I think there is a recipe. And I'm just going to say I was a CHRO at Thompson for a global, one of our global businesses. And the CEO there also really relied on HR. And, I, and what I would say to answer that question, it's really you'll be more incredibly valuable if you understand the business inside and out. I would say really influence your clients, internal clients, by coming up with new recommendations on how they can run their business differently, have their talent shine more, have a happier workforce. But you have to get out into the businesses, know the business inside and out. And I, my mentor, when I, you know, became the CHRO at Lincoln was Randy McDonald. He was the head of HR for IBM. And he said, if you're spending more than 25% of your time in your office in your first year, you're going to fail, like get out in the businesses. And he and I were so aligned on that because at Thompson, we were so business oriented Nobody knew if you were in HR or line business. Like they just didn't know. They just knew that you were influencing. So the last part of that answer, I think, JP, that is important to me is effective communications to all your stakeholders and no surprises. And, you know, good and bad news has to be received without drama and it needs to be really measured from the standpoint of what are the impacts to the organization or the people or whatever the situation is. And even if HR doesn't own or lead communications, that partnership is so incredibly important. The partnership with legal is important and quite frankly with every functional area, but and finance for sure. And if you're going to influence, you need to know your facts and be part of even conversations that have nothing to do with people, because guess what? It actually all impacts people. And you have to really be able to stay on that page from the standpoint of you just can't focus just on your day-to-day job, like get out there and 
know the business inside and out. Next, in episode 25, HR is not about HR. The one and only Dave Ulrich stopped by and took listener questions. This was an incredible conversation and the most downloaded podcast of 2023. And in this clip, you hear Dave talk about not only HR is not about HR, but his career advice for next generation HR leaders. That's where I like to go. And I think, Jan, to the next generation, let me, uh, let me share one other story. And JP, you're letting me take off on stories. This was, um, and I'll mention, it's an old executive. His name was Larry Bossidy. He worked at GE, worked at Allied Signal, great executive. And I was in a session with him once and he, and people were asking him, how do I get on your team? How do I get on your team? This is the message to the next generation. He said, I'm CEO, I'm president. I can handle 10 people. I can't manage a team of 30. I can't manage a team of 15. I can manage 10. Here's my advice to you. Get your ideas in front of me, not you. Over time, if your ideas keep getting winnowed up to my dis- attention through those 10 people, I'll know who you are. Don't try to get on the team. Try to get your ideas in front of me. Mm. And that's my advice to the next generation. It's less political about your presence physically. It's more required, I think, to get your, in- your ideas, your IP, your creativity in front. And, uh, and he said, I'll figure it out. We're not stupid. If your ideas keep popping up, you'll show up. The next question comes from uh, actually a podcast guest, Steve Hunt, <laughs> who I really admire. Steve's, uh, you know, works at SAP. He said it's a little bit long-winded, but I'm going to try to keep Just a, a shout out. Steve has done some great work. I've seen his oh. work. I've seen his writing. I've endorsed it. Steve has just done great work. So a shout he, out. He really Steve. is. Yeah. Talent TikToks is his latest book. It's a great tremendous book. book. So he talks about for decades, we have talked about the need for HR to have a voice at the leadership table. While we've made a lot of progress, many organizations continue to treat HR as a support function to engage after leadership decisions have been made as opposed to a strategic partner to guide decision-making before the company commits to a course of action. What are the barriers to prevent CHROs from having the same level of influence as CFOs and to guiding the strategy and overcome them? Um, Steve, people should read your book. Uh, (laughs) um, You know, it's really interesting because Again, I'm trying to do this through stories so that people will listen. I uh, Probably about three months ago, I was on a flight. A professor at the university was on a flight with me with his spouse. I got off and the professor introduced me to his spouse and said, this is Dave Alrich. He teaches at the school. He does HR. And I could just hear in that, I don't know, syrupy, demeaning voice. That's the HR. It's, it's Scott Adams, Dilbert. It's the policy police. It, you know, it's just. And I nodded my head and I said, you know, thank you very much. I'm really sorry that I'm offending you. And, uh, and then I thought about that. And I thought, we need to say, what are we doing in HR? What we're doing in HR is creating value in the marketplace. Our people, our organization, our culture, our leadership are all designed so that customers and investors have a better experience. The headline is HR is not about HR. It's about success in the marketplace. Steve, I think the barrier is we in HR have to change that mindset. I use the story. What's your biggest challenge today? It's an HR practice. No. How do I connect what I do? I don't know how to get there. I said earlier in our pre-conversation briefly, I feel sometimes like Sisyphus pushing the ball up the mountain and we're not there. I interviewed a head of HR in a large company two months ago. And I said, what conversations are you having with? investors. And she said, what do you mean investors? Well, investors, I mean, who's buying stock in your company? You have an investor day, you have an investor call. What are you saying? She said, I don't know. I I mean, I have two minutes. We have high employee engagement. If I were her, I would be screaming. Do you realize that 80% of a company's market value is the intangibles? Now we could look at her company specifically, and we've done that with companies. 80% is intangibles and at 30% of those intangibles are organization of people. I've got into senior HR folks, Stephen, I'm trying to give you the data that may help you do it and said, your market value is $10 billion. And the HR person said, okay, that's nice. Given your price earnings ratio, 
is 20% below industry average. And we look at your price earnings, the value of those intangibles. Do people value it? That's $2 billion if you were industry average. When you go to the executives, you should talk about making up that $2 billion. You're not here to ask for 100000 or 200000 to run a training program. You're asked to get a larger chunk of the $2 billion left on the table. Next up is Matt Breitfelder, head of human capital and partner at Apollo Global Management, who gave us a masterclass on what it means to be a CHRO in episode 34. In this clip, you'll hear Matt discuss the importance of understanding your business leaders and why it's so important that HR does not have an agenda other than making the business successful. If you haven't listened to this episode and you're a chief people officer or aspire to be one, I highly recommend it. But what about organizations that have senior leaders who just aren't really buying in to listening to the employee survey? How should they be positioning this with their leaders? Part of being a good coach or a good change leader is understanding where your leaders are coming from. And I think the tools and ideas we have in HR today are very resilient and very adaptable to almost any situation. So what does that skeptical leader care about? And am I doing a good enough job connecting these tools with what they care about? So if they care about costs, the reason why you should understand where what your employees care about is that's how you attract talent and reduce the cost of talent acquisition or reduce the cost of attrition. I don't think I've ever met a business leader who's not interested in that. <laughs> And if they're not, it's kind of unusual. The other thing almost every business leader I've ever worked with cares about is how performance. So back to your point about high performance organization or high performance individual. There's a reason why, and again, Jim Collins' book is a great illustrator of this. There's a reason why most companies revert to the mean. Mean reversion of you become average over time if you don't fight really hard against it should scare every company. You know, your competitive advantage or what makes you really special, there's a lot of forces that are pushing you to lose that magic unless you work really hard at it. That's true organizationally. It's true individually. And if you understand that leader and you position yourself with that leader in a very pure way, like I almost think about the Venn diagram of what is the organization or the CEO asking us all to do? And what is that individual leader trying to achieve for themselves? The work is the, is the Venn diagram of those two things. And so I want to invest the time with all of these skeptical leaders to understand who they are, what they care about, what drives them, and what they're trying to achieve for the CEO. And if I listen hard to that and I, and I help them understand that I, I have no agenda. My only agenda is to help the CEO achieve their goals and to help that executive fulfill their potential and to be great at whatever they're tasked with doing. So if they believe me and they should believe me because, you know, I, I, that's my intention and my focus and I work really hard to keep that clear, then I just want them to be great. And the more great they are, in the right direction for what oftentimes I'm helping them understand what the CEO is asking them to do and helping them unpack that problem solving. There's no HR agenda for them to fight against. The only agenda is helping everyone be more successful tomorrow than they were yesterday. In episode 36, Driving Value and Reducing Complexity, Miriam Ort, EVP and CHRO at CS Wholesale Grocers and Symbiotic, and co-author of One Page Talent Management shares her insights on why HR leaders have a unique viewpoint on the organization and why business leaders will be smart to bring us in early and often. Miriam, recently we had Dave Ulrich on the podcast and he uses the phrase, HR is not about HR. In your words, what does that mean to you? So I listened to fantastic podcast with Dave, by the way. You know, what that means to me is that we are always starting with the business. What is the business need or what's the business problem that we're trying to solve or what's the business opportunity that we're trying to pursue? And then as HR leaders, right, we have levers around people and talent and culture that we can pull on to deliver those business results. That's how I think about it. And 
I do want to build on something Dave said, if I can, because he talked about asking senior leaders, you know, what does the business have to do to succeed? And building out, I think he described it as like a menu of options on the HR side to drive that agenda. And I did just want to highlight that HR is often really well positioned to think about that question. We have a unique cross-functional vantage point in the organization. And I think that sets us up to help leaders diagnose the business problem or identify what it is that the business actually needs to do to succeed. And then once we help them crystallize that, we're also really set up to help figure out how we're going to deliver it. But I think if HR only enters the conversation after sort of that question has been crystallized around what does the business need to do to succeed, and we're only there to work on the solution, I think we're too late. I think the role of HR is really to help formulate that answer and then work together with our business leaders on delivering what's needed. In episode 37, Creating a Culture of Trust, Sam Hammock, Verizon CHRO, joins the podcast to talk about why the best cultures are built on a foundation of transparency and trust. Sam is the real deal, smart, authentic, and business-focused. And I learned a ton from her in our conversation and I know you will too. Check it out. You're also a big believer in transparency with employees and the importance of being transparent. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit more around why that's important to you and how you're bringing this to life with your internal talent marketplace. I think it's really progressive. Yeah. Well, one of the big reasons is because I think transparency fosters trust. For Just very simply. And the more open that we can be with our employees about for example, our talent systems. And when I say talent systems, it's, you know, we're all graded, right? So to pretend that we don't know that's happening is crazy. It's like you just said, it's the new performance management. We'll never stop talking about performance management either. But this is an easy example for me when I talk about transparency is we owe it. I truly believe that we have an obligation to colleagues and employees in our companies to be open about how those processes work. If that is the system that we are using to incentivize you, drive compensation, drive future role and career changes and promotions, we have an obligation to be open and transparent about what that process looks like. You know, what percentage is going in? Are you using forced ranking? Are you not? How is it driving your compensation? To what degree, right? Where does the manager have discretion on what they're using? What do these really mean about, you know, all the things we use it for? Because it's also not just career changes. There could It could be used for development opportunities, right? Who are we picking and doing? And I feel very strongly having that open transparency with your employee base on systems like that, on programs, et cetera, creates a trust. Um, And I'm a really big believer on setting the right expectations. And I think this is something that we fail at often and it does everyone a disservice, right? The company, the leaders, and the employees when we don't have that. So that's just a, a tiny snippet, but that feeds through the rest of my beliefs around transparency. You're so right that transparency really builds that trust. And I think we struggle with this, right? And a lot of HR people probably feel like you do. And I think you so eloquently stated why we should be more transparent. So people understand the rules of the game and how to play and can opt in or opt out. So I love what you're doing there. And it sounds like you guys are doing some really interesting things, trying to be more transparent about career pathing, and really all facets of the talent system. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. The number one reason, and, and I think this cuts across most companies, that people will tell you they left the company in exit surveys, is it's either your number one or two reason is career progression. And it's not because they didn't get promoted. It's because they didn't have the visibility of what it would take or how to get to the next level or another role. And so for me, that's transparency. And so one of the things that we have is what we call talent GPS, it's not rocket science. Like anybody could go out and, and do this somewhat simply without over-engineering it. We have 2,100 different role types at Verizon for 120,000 of our V-teamers. And what we did is we created a microsite and we put out there every single job profile of the 2,100 jobs. And you can go in and look. You can look who in the company sits in each one of those, how many people are tied to each role, where those roles sit, what skills you need to get the job. 
that little piece alone was a game changer for us and people saying, oh, now I see what some of these different paths are and what it would take for me to be even considered for that type of role. Next up is Ola Snow, who's a CHO for Cardinal Health. And at episode 39, Great Leaders Need Truth Tellers, Ola shares her incredible career and goes deep on why HR leaders need to be truth tellers, but also why it's critical that we seek out our own truth tellers who will give us the brutal truth, even when we don't want to hear it. Ola, as a leader, you really pride yourself on being a truth teller and surrounding yourself with truth tellers. Why is it so important to you and how has it helped your career and what does it mean to be a truth teller? We know about mentors, we know about coaches, we know about sponsors, but I also think you have to surround yourself with truth tellers. That's a group of people that will help you both professionally and personally around. uh, They will tell you what's going on in these organizations. We get such sanitized information as it comes up, in my case, to the fourth floor where I sit that sometimes you need to know what really is on people's mind. And so I have I think I've been a truth teller throughout my career, telling people what they need to hear and not what they want to hear. And sometimes I think that can distinguish us as great HR leaders, but somebody to have courage to go, here's what's really going on. And so they also will help you personally. I have truth tellers that will say, you know, that didn't resonate very well with our workforce. And here's what people are really saying, Olas. You know, take COVID, take hybrid, take culture in general. So making sure that you're getting that two-way feedback on, I go out and I ask, tell me how that message landed, whether it's mine or CEOs or executive team, how that land with people. And I am fortunate enough to have a group of people who trust me and that can say that went really great. That didn't go so good. Here's are the elephants in the room or what people really want to know. And I think that makes us really relevant that we can listen to people, understand what's really on the minds of our leaders and employees so that, so that they know that the questions that we're asking are, are genuine ones and are coming from an authentic place. Are there any tips on how HR leaders or business leaders can get more truth tellers in their orbit and really encourage people to do that? Because it's one thing to say, I want to know what's going on, tell me. Then for someone to have the courage and trust to really say, okay, here's what I really think, and I'm not going to be penalized for it. Well, you called it. You called it trust. And so I've said to many a leader like, hey, dude, you can't give me up, right? Like I'm giving you some really great advice and telling you what's going on. But like, you've got to be able to take that and hold that information. Um, And again, we're talking about not confidential information or information that we would need to bring to the forefront, but just good coaching. So I think it's about building trust. I also think people will give you their thoughts when they know that you're going to, you're going to take that and do something with it or not do something with it, but people understand that you're building that up. You know, I have the advantage of being in this organization for a really long time and building those trusting relationships with people. And so keeping your word and making sure that you keep that conversation as confidential as you absolutely can, but making sure that People feel safe that they can both share with you, but they are helping the organization. I once was asked, how do you build trust with people so easily? You just people trust you. And I just, I think it's just being totally authentic. I mean, my organization kind of knows the the good, the bad, and the ugly even about me and being that authentic leader and being able to share lots of things, both personally, but you know, in a large setting too, I think builds trust that people know that what they can share with me or what I say to them is coming from a genuine place might not be what they want to hear, but they understand that I'm going to explain that the decisions that we make. And I think that's just building up credibility with people one by one, but with your workforce as well. In episode 40, Wrong Fit, Right Fit, the brilliant and innovative Andre Martin stops by to share the key learnings from his new book. And in this clip, he explains how to assess if a company's a right fit or a wrong fit before you join. 
And you say in your book, don't judge a company by its career page. What do you mean by this? And how should candidates start to judge that company? Yeah, so it's interesting. If you go out to most career pages, and you probably experienced this too, JP, they become brilliant marketing campaigns, right? There's much aspiration and vision and hope and really what the company in many ways wishes they were every day. But what happens is we set up our employees, our new recruits, the folks that come into the company to experience three versions of company. The first one is the one that's marketed to us in recruiting. It is that aspirational, ideal, best of the best sort of experience because it's highly competitive to get talent. And then what happens is you buy that, right? And then you come in on your first day and you get this curated version of what the company is. It's the best leaders. It's the most impactful products. It's the best work systems that we use. It's all the things that will be a part of your life, but you're seeing the best version. And then the last is the place where you're going to spend your life. And what we're finding in these interviews was that in creating these three versions of the company, we're eroding engagement from the very start. I think it's this company that I was recruited into. It actually felt like the company when I was there on the first day. And then you sent me to the place where I work and none of it's really true. It's not that it's good or bad. It's just that it's different. And that mismatch of expectation is driving some of the stats you're seeing. 30% of employees that join a new company leave within 90 days. Those that stay more than six months, 60% of them are still looking for a new job. Part of that is because there's this mismatch of expectation. And those stats really are kind of crazy to me when you think about the fact that choosing to work for a company is a very big decision. It is. And to your point, most people don't probably join a company thinking they want to leave after a few weeks, a month, or six months. It's a little bit like a marriage. And you're going in, of course, hey, I don't want to get divorced. <laughs> we're in love. You find out that's not the person you thought you were marrying. It's similar in companies, right? And we've got things like Glassdoor now. We're trying to get more intel. But I think we still don't really know what it's like to work in the company. And so what have you found... Andre, what are people, what should they be doing to get behind the marketing veneer to really understand like what day-to-day life is going to be like in that job? There's a few things, JP. You mentioned the first one, which is we need to change our orientation to our interviews. Instead of asking questions that might in many ways ingratiate us to the company, we need to be asking harder questions of those companies. I love the one that you just said around, tell me about a decision you made in the last month that describes your culture. Another one that's great is tell me about the success profile of the person who's been able to move through this company most effectively. Another one is really just asking those questions of how does work get done? Walk me through a project. Show me your calendar. What's your relationship to time? And those kind of things are really important to your day-to-day life. And so the interview is one thing. I think secondly is diversifying our information sets. So we often go through an interview process, three to four, maybe five interviews. We look at the career site. We might check out Glassdoor. But there's so many additional assets out there from videos of leaders talking about the company to annual reports to using the network of people who have left and hearing their experience live. I have people reach out to me all the time asking about the companies I've been to, and I'm happy to have those conversations with them to tell them my experience of being there and what they can expect going in. And so second is just diversifying that information set. And I think third is just watching out for confirmation bias. When we are motivated to make a decision, it's often on title, on pay, on the scope of the role, on the power of the brand. And all those assets, they play to a part of our brain that's about pleasure. When in fact, commitment is more like a warm hug and it's about how it feels in the day to day. And so really making sure that you're paying attention to all the, all the information. In many of our interviews, when we ask the question of, tell us the moment when you knew this was a wrong fit experience, almost everybody pointed back to, I knew it in the interview, and I ignored the information. Next up is my friend, Tammy Rosen, Chief People Officer of Pagaya. And in episode 46, Tammy tells us why she believes that performance management's dead and what she recommends companies do instead. 
This was one of the most popular episodes of the year, and you do not want to miss what she has to say on this topic. You've been known to say that performance management is dead. What do you mean by this statement? Why do you think this is the case? Uh, I really do think that the performance management systems, as we know it, are dead. And really, instead of calling it performance management, we should start talking about motivating performance. Because if people is your product and people need to be motivated to do their best work, why are we looking back at feedback versus looking forward at how we learn? And that's the challenge we have right now. If you ask people, most people fear that process. They don't get any benefit out of it. And they're looking for what the outcome is, whether it's pay, performance, whatnot. And those things actually go against what the key should be, which is learning. And feedback, we all know, is imperfect. It's biased. It doesn't encourage people to listen if they're not feeling it's right and it's not put in the right environment. So I would like to flip it on its head. And I have been flipping on its head, especially at Pagaya, and thinking about it from our culture of learning or continuously learn as a value of ours and saying, how does learning happen? And how do we create those systems to encourage that? And what I did was recently look up the definition of learning. And it was, it's interesting because the first definition is to acquire knowledge, skills, and experiences. Now, when I think about that definition, there's such a misconception in there. It's kind of like you're telling me that's like, that's college. You know, here's, here's information. Take a test. Okay. You acquired learning, but that's not learning. Learning is really about what you do once you acquire that knowledge, experience, or skill and how you apply it to that situation you don't know differently in a way to make a better outcome. And so if that's what learning's about, then let's design something that encourages that and put it into an environment that really motivates performance. And so what we did at Pagaya is we called it the continuous learning cycle. We have it two times a year. And we started out with first, managers, employees need to align on what they accomplished. What did that employee accomplish during that year? And think about that. Then think about how you learned through it. What were your successes? Why were you successful? Do you ask that question so that you can continue being successful? Athletes do every day. They perfect their crafts, right? But we don't inform its management. So in motivating performance, we must, right? And then the second piece is like, where did you fall on your face and fail? Okay, people don't like to have that conversation. Why? Because they think there's an outcome as a result of it. But if you create an environment that is not a rating, not tied to promotion, then you'll see people will be more willing to say, let's dissect where it didn't go well and let me see how I can help you. And that's the third piece of it, which is this whole thing is designed with where were your successes? Where did you fail? Where did you succeed? And what did you learn from it? And then how can I manager help you employee and the company so that you can, when you put out your next three to six months of what you're going to do it well and that I'm going to support you in doing it. In episode 48, What Leaders Expect from HR, Jay Parker, founder and CEO of MentorForce and former president of Dell Personal Computing Group, shares what business leaders expect from their HR partners, and it's much more than keeping him out of HR jail. This was also one of the most downloaded episodes of the year, and I received many emails about Jay's honesty and the message that really resonated with HR leaders. Be sure to check this one out if you haven't already. I want to turn the lens to HR a little bit. And from a senior leader's perspective, can you walk us through what you expect from the HR function and specifically maybe that HR leader that's supporting you and thinking back to your experience at Lenovo and Dell, what do you expect from us? Yeah, the number one thing that I wanted and expected and usually got was a close relationship, even more so than my relationship with my CFO or my head marketing person, or my head salesperson, you really want your HR leader to be your confidant. Not only on HR issues, by the way. And so whenever I had that, I felt like I had a good HR person. And I'll try to give you a little bit more specifics in terms of what makes up the relationship in my mind. And I keep going back to this theme, I guess. Transparency is one. Like, I don't want to feel like someone has an agenda or they're kind of hiding something from me or they're scared of me and they don't want to tell me the truth. Like, I just want them to tell me the truth, what they think. I can choose to believe it or agree with it or not. I want them to challenge my thinking 
And I want there to be give and take. I want to listen to them, but they need to be tough enough and open-minded enough to also hear what I think and not always kind of take what I'll maybe call the HR party line, if that makes sense. Let's have a real conversation about what works, what doesn't work, what we could do, what we couldn't do, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And then we'll decide together. That's what I want that relationship to look like. And I guess the last thing I'll say is I also want them to be a business person. And I have had HR people that, man, they knew the process in and out. They were great at the compensation management process. They always kept me on time. You know, they made sure that we had our reviews. Everybody had their reviews done and all that kind of stuff. And that's nice. That kind of kept me out of HR jail. But what I really want is a business person that understands the strategy, that understands what the salesperson is doing and what the marketing person is doing and has opinions on it so that we can kind of talk through it in that relationship-oriented way that I that I kind of referred to. Well, I'm glad that people are keeping you out of <laughs> HR jail. I'm about to use that one. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear that. I think that's really helpful for, for the listeners and next-generation HR leaders to hear what really matters. And let me say one other thing, JP, about that, that that may help the folks that are listening, you know, again, from my perspective, I believe as an HR person that it needs to be clear that you're helping that executive achieve their goals. In other words, your job is not to protect the HR kingdom and sanctity. Your job is to help that leader achieve business goals. Now, you have to do that in ethical ways and ways that meet with company policy and ways that make sense for the people in the organization, all of that stuff. I don't mean to say follow blindly and do dumb things that some executive wants to do, but it needs to be clear that your real purpose is to help them achieve their business goals. And I say that because I've only recently come to understand this from this perspective. I haven't thought about it this way. That business executive, oftentimes their head's on the chopping block, so to speak. You know, they got to get results. And if they don't get results, whatever that might be, whatever their function they're running, they're not going to be there very long. And so they're under a lot of pressure and need someone that they feel like is quote unquote on their team that's really helping them get there in an open minded way while keeping them, you know, it, on the right tracks. Because if you think about it, they, that HR person, in my experience, they'll be there for multiple executives. You know, most of the time executives roll in and out and it's the same HR leader a lot of times. For, you know, so it's, you just, I would understand that, hey, it's probably their head on the chopping block. If I can figure out how to help them be successful, then I'm going to have that relationship with them that I'm looking for, they're looking for. And as a result, my career will grow. Next up, episode 49, leading with expertise with my friend, Carrie Friedman, global head of human resources at Jefferies. In this clip, Carrie shares his advice for next generation HR leaders and why they should focus on becoming experts on something that will benefit their company and build their personal brand. And for all of your listeners who are early in their HR careers, one of the best pieces of advice I received came from Steve Kerr. Steve's well-known for his role as the chief learning officer at GE during the Jack Welch era, and who I had the great privilege of working for when he joined Goldman in 2001. Steve encouraged all team members to develop an area of expertise, one that's useful internally, of course, but also something that could be leveraged externally. And for me, the area of expertise was executive coaching. I had the opportunity to lead the coaching practice at Goldman, where several of the senior most leaders were paired with an executive coach to help them improve as leaders and managers. And I learned a great deal about coaching. As Steve would say, if you read three books on coaching, guess what? You probably know a lot more about coaching than anyone else. Um, So I was very well read on the topic. I spent hours talking to Goldman's cadre of executive coaches as I was really fascinated by the role coaches played within an organization. Because I learned and knew a lot about coaching, I was the person who was educating others and meeting with the senior leaders who were going to be paired up with the coach, despite 
being in my early 20s at that time. So the lesson for everyone listening is that experts want to deal with experts. Age should not be a factor, as if you know more than they do and you can help them. I learned they would happily accept my guidance and my advice. And just like I respected the business leaders to be experts in their field, they respected me as an expert in my field. And despite them being much older than I was at the time, I wasn't intimidated as I knew I had something I could offer that would be helpful to them in achieving their career ambitions. And soon thereafter, this area of expertise started getting me invited to speak at conferences, like the conference board. I was writing chapters about coaching and books, and I got invited to spend time with other firms who are also looking to start up coaching programs or who are looking for referrals on coaches. So I achieved that goal that Steve had laid out for us, which was become an expert on a topic that would serve the firm, could serve clients and the broader HR community. In episode 53, Matt Abrams, a leading expert in communications and author of Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot, joins the podcast to help us all become better spontaneous communicators. He covered a lot of ground in this conversation. And in this clip, Matt discusses his 4i feedback model and why I've used feedback as an invitation to problem solve. Besides trying to influence, we give a lot of feedback mm -hmm. or we're coaching managers on how to give feedback. It's a critical skill for HR leaders. In your book, you outline what you call the four eyes method to providing feedback. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So feedback is a critical skill for many people, but it's certainly folks in the HR world. You're giving feedback to employees, to others outside your group, and you're also teaching people and in some cases holding people accountable. I'm thinking about performance reviews for the feedback they give. So feedback is really critical in the HR world. First and foremost, I think we need to look at feedback a little differently. To me, feedback is an invitation to problem solve. I'm talking about constructive feedback. It's an invitation to problem solve. Now, there are certainly actions or inactions that people do that you, you absolutely have to put a stop to. If somebody's doing something offensive or dangerous, that's not the type of feedback I'm talking about. That has to stop and you do it immediately. But when you have a situation, let's say somebody who isn't completing their work in a timely fashion or somebody who's not turning in the, their deliverables in a way that sets up everybody else for success in terms of their quality, for example, this is an opportunity to problem solve. So before you ever start giving a message, you need to think quickly, what might be leading to this behavior? And I have a very quick story to tell as an example of this. Many, many years ago, when my two children were younger, I was doing some work in my office and I hear this loud crash and I run out and there I see my older son standing on the counter, having reached above his head to pull a plate, which had clearly fallen on the ground and shattered. And being a good parent, I immediately look, make sure there's no blood and I start yelling, what are you doing on the counter? Why are you doing that? You shouldn't do that. That's not safe. Uh, and through his tears, because I was yelling at him, uh, my son says, that he was climbing up on the counter to get a plate for his younger brother because he didn't want to interrupt me because they knew I was doing important work. Well, how did I feel, right? I felt like a jerk, all right? Here, my kid is trying to do something very, very helpful, and I'm yelling at him. Now, should he have been given constructive feedback? Absolutely. What he did was dangerous. He should not have done it, and he should not do it in the future. But the way I approached it could have been very different. I shouldn't have been yelling. I should have changed. So, the point is this, if you understand or at least think about what might motivate the behavior, it might change the feedback. So if somebody's not turning in their work on time or to a certain quality, if you were to learn that they were caring for a sick relative, would that change the feedback you gave versus if you thought the person was just out partying or playing video games or something like that? Certainly it would. So you have to think about feedback as an opportunity to problem solve and what might motivate the behavior. Once you've done that, the four eyes are simply a way of structuring feedback. And the four I's are as follows. There's information, impact, invitation, and implication. So let me walk through those quickly. Information is simply objectively the behavior that you are giving feedback on. Often when we give feedback, it's not clear to the person receiving it, the specific nature. We expand or it's not clear. So I might say, this is now the third meeting that you've showed up with material that was not completed. That's very objective. Everybody can look. They can look at the time, look at the quality of the work. Impact is what it means for you, the feedback giver. So I might say something like, I feel you're not prioritizing this project to the same level the rest of us are. 
And the reason it's important to use I language, another reason I call it the four eyes, is because it, you're trying to reduce defensiveness. If I'm trying to invite you to problem solve with me, I'm trying to reduce defensiveness. So when I say I feel or I think, that's very different than I, me saying you aren't prioritizing it. So you give the implication so the person understands how important this is, but you do it through your perspective. So it's information, impact, and then invitation. This is where you can either make a declarative statement, I need you to show up to the next meeting with the materials prepared, or you might say, what can I do or what can we do to help make sure that the materials are prepared next time? So your invitation can be a declaration or a question. And then finally, implications. And these are consequences, positive or negative. So I can say, if you show up on time with your material complete, uh, we'll finish this project early and be able to get new exciting projects. Or I could say, if you continue to show up without your high quality output, we might have to remove you from the team. So the four eyes of information, impact, invitation, and implications can really help you structure your thoughts, but also package it up in a way that's understandable and easily digestible by your audience. Next up is episode 54, Reimagining Inclusion, with Mita Malik, Chief Diversity Officer and author of Reimagining Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. Mita is a force to be reckoned with, and I can't recommend her new book enough. In this clip, we discuss the myth and what to do when someone says, I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. But you do cover 13 myths that need to be addressed. And I wonder, which myths do you think are most common or also causing the most damage to our organization? Now you're asking me to pick between my two kids. You know when your kids do that? Who do you like more, mom? So I'll pick two. They're all applicable. And oh, by the way, people ask why 13. It's my lucky number. So let's not overthink it. I just love 13. Maybe there'll be another 13 in the next book. I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. That's myth four. I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. And, and a lot of, as you read in Reimagined Inclusion, JP, I ask people to self-reflect on the opposite. Would we ever say I'm all for non-diverse talent as long as they're good? And one of the stories I share are examples let's say I work for you and you're the CEO and you have appointed me to your executive team to lead a troubled part of the business. And for all, and I'm the first woman of color on the exec team. And for all the reasons, it just didn't work out for you, for the company, for me, I moved on. Are you now more or less reluctant to hire a woman of color if it was the first? Now let's actually pick the, another scenario where it's a white man. Same situation. He joins your exec team. You hire him to lead a trouble part of the business for all the reasons it doesn't work out for you, him, the company, he moves on. Are you more or less reluctant to hire a white man now to lead anything in your company or sit on your exec team? And so I do think the work that needs to be done is really asking people open ended questions and asking them to think about the reverse. And if that is true, why is it that you automatically assume that opening up the pipeline? And having diversity representation when you're reviewing candidates is lowering the bar. And that's likely because, not you, but you in general, have not met a lot of women of color. And you don't know a lot of women of color. So unfortunately, I become the stereotype of what all women of color represent. It's really true. And in that situation, you're like, well, you know, there were other things. There's reasons why it didn't yes. work out. You make the excuse, Right. And this is the one I actually underlined myself to ask you about, because for me, this is the one I hear the most in mm -hmm. HR, or leaders say, or CEOs say, I'm all for diversity as long as they're good. And I was like, isn't all talent supposed to be good? And why are we asking this question? I mean, it's a, it's a silly question. Now, you've made a much better flip on it than I probably did. But what should HR leaders, talent acquisition leaders, say to leaders when they hear that? Is that how you would tackle it? Or are there other strategies you would you get into? Tell me more about you're all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Tell me more about what you mean by good. What in Mita's track record of experience, resume background, is causing you pause or questions? We talk about this on our podcast, Brown Table Talk, facts versus feelings. Facts versus feelings. We're all human. We have feelings. I'm not sure if I would, this is true story, JP, I talk about this in my podcast. Someone told me, I'm not sure if they'd take a, they would roll the dice on me. The CEO said, we roll the dice or take a bet on me. I was like, what? You know, all these coded things like, 
I don't know if she's professional enough. I talk about this a lot in the book, gendered ageism. I've never been the right age. I'm either too young or too old. I'm either too experienced, not enough maturity, not enough executive presence, not enough gravitas charisma, right? So all this coded language, ask people to unpack it. Because if you can, because if I say to you, that was sexist, that was racist, that was homophobic, I am killing psychological safety. But if I can get you to explore and get you to unpack what you're saying, you probably will realize it's a feeling and it's not a fact. Or maybe it is a fact. You can actually factually say, I wouldn't put Mita in front of a customer because she has no sales experience, right? And you might actually say, okay, that's like 90% true. All right. But the question also is, if Mito was a white man and had no sales experience, would you be more willing to take a bet on him? And particularly, as you know, in the business world and corporate, relationships matter a lot and friendships. And so then we have different standards for different people on what we will allow and not allow. In episode 57, The Future of Remote Work, I had the pleasure of speaking with Nick Bloom, work from home expert and professor of economics at Stanford University. I've been following Nick for Nick's research. I've been following Nick's research since the pandemic and asked him to come on the podcast to help us clear up the facts on remote and hybrid work. In this clip, he talks about how to optimize hybrid work schedules for maximum impact. And if you want the truth and the facts on hybrid work or remote work, this is the episode for you. How can HR leaders optimize performance and engagement, fully remote or hybrid settings? What's the research say on how to bring people together, drive performance and drive that engagement? I think I'll go through four tips I can give. So the first is the critical importance of performance management. I've actually been saying to CEOs, CFOs, et cetera, that HR performance management systems are really important. Why? Well, if you think when folks are in the office, you can get away with management by walking around. I'm not claiming it's great, but I can walk by JPC, the desk typing away appear to be working. It's kind of four out of 10, five out of 10 management. I wouldn't claim it's great, but it's livable. And with that, you can maybe get away without good performance reviews. As soon as folks are remote one plus day a week, that's no longer possible. So a critical thing one, probably six monthly rigorous reviews, proper system, HR's involved, managers and work, employees are assessed, given feedback, they're collated, it goes through, there's a grading scale, et cetera. I think point two is the importance of having videos on when people are on Zoom calls. So another fact I hear regularly is folks saying, on the work from home days, sometimes I notice there are folks without their videos on. I would norm it again from HR that If there are meetings of, say, 20 or less individuals, it's important that everyone turns their video on. If it's like 30, 40, it's a town hall, it's a broadcast, maybe not. But look, we have survey data. We ask people, are you more engaged when your video is on? And also, do you feel other people are more engaged with the videos on? The answer is strongly yes and yes. So it's pretty clear people that's videos off and muted are not focused so much. The third thing is around making sure that when people are in the office, they're doing activities that make it feel worthwhile coming in. And that's as much management as HR. But that is saying, look, when you're in, what benefits from face-to-face? Think about those activities. They are probably presentations, meeting, training, mentoring, lunches, events, et cetera. So those should be scheduled on in-person days. And home days should be discussion, reading, writing, you know, analysis, quart, one-on-one things. I also think the office needs to be designed to support that. So getting rid of a lot of cubicle space, which is kind of like library style offices. They're places you go and quietly work, individual small rooms and having more meeting rooms, presentation rooms, places that people can socially work together. So fact three is to make it work, make organized hybrid work. There's got to be a social element and reason people come in. They've got to leave at the end of the day thinking I could not have done that at home. I benefited from coming in. And fact four is I think we should be mandating and managing anchor days, common days in the office. So to explain why, imagine you have a plan whereby in your team, it is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, Monday, Friday at home. If there's a team of eight people and let's say Stuart decides not to come in, the other seven, you know, all eight of us are having a meeting. We can't have it in the canteen. We can't have it outside. We can't have it over coffee. We've got to go to a room. We've got to connect up Stuart. We've got to say, okay, can you hear us? Fiddle around with the microphones. It's really annoying. He's probably, you know, disconnected. His head is 20 foot high on the side of the room. It's contentious. The meeting ends. We walk out. We're still carrying on. We're chatting in the corridor. He's not really connected. So I think if your kid is sick or your car breaks down or something, then you can't come in. 
then a lot of firms are now saying their policy to say, you know, we should attend to what you need to attend to at home. We will take notes and update you later. In-person meetings are going to be for in-people attendees. If you have childcare issues, we totally understand it happens. Here are the minutes. We'll let you join later. Maybe the only exception is if you're sick to try and encourage folks not to come into the office. If you know they think they're sick, they can connect in. But the big thing is to try and mandate people to come in on their office days and suggest also actually they work from home on their home days. So to try and manage that process. Next up are two of my good friends, Ann Gotti, Vice President of Global Talent at General Mills, and Joe Garbus, EVP Global Head of Talent at PBH Corp. And in episode 58, What Works Talent Review, we go deep on what makes a talent review effective. This was an incredibly popular episode and a must listen for anyone who owns talent reviews. In your opinion, what should we really be trying to achieve with a talent review and why are they important? I appreciate the question. I'm a big fan of the basics as well. I think, you know, really focusing in on the foundation of things as opposed to some of the sexy objects out there that we chase, you know, are really important to, you know, and very compelling for our businesses that we serve. So I think, you know, for the companies I've worked for, JP, people are sort of the largest cost line or investment line to begin an analogy I like to make. And to optimize that investment, you need to understand the investment, appreciate how the investment is performing and what it can do to perform better to optimize the portfolio and achieve the portfolio's aims, which for the portfolio, whether that's, you know, to extend the metaphor of the company, that's sort of long-term growth targets, et cetera. And for the individual, that's sort of career success, retirement, buying a second home, you know, those kinds of things. And a talent review is knowing what you need and what you got. So it's supply and demand. How much time you spend on the demand side or the supply side depends on what you're trying to accomplish. You know, truly understanding a specific talent population, for instance, a certain level of leadership, a team, a group, a business unit. And so I liken it to understanding your asset portfolio. What are they delivering and how are they delivering it? Who are your highest potential people and what do they want and what can they do and when? Which is why I sort of refer to it as talent planning. It's more about assessing in order to take action. And succession is a big piece of that. Who can do the roles that are most critical to the company? And so like any other business process, talent review is important. It's sort of a function of execution, right? Otherwise, it's really an expensive information share. Talent planning versus talent review, I think is a really interesting insight. And what are your thoughts on why we do talent reviews and why they're important? Yeah, I'll build on Joe's really important remark around this idea that it's kind of active and ongoing. The planning itself is active, as is the asset we're planning around. And so when I think about talent reviews, I think about them fundamentally as a diagnostic and planning tool. And diagnostic and planning tools essentially look at forecasts. And forecasts are, you know, really evaluated by their relevance and their accuracy. Did we look at and think about and plan for the right thing? Did those things end up mattering? And were we right? Or were we mixed or even way off the base? And so I think when we're doing that diagnostic work and we're thinking about that planning, it's really, were we right on the talent requirements? Did we have the conversation about what is needed and why? And Joe alluded to that a moment ago, and particularly when he talked about the notion of, do you focus more on supply or more on demand? It depends a little on what your requirements are, how stable they are, or if they're changing quite a bit. Were we right about the talent supply? Did we have shared language and shared standards for evaluating and differentiating talent? And were we prepared to respond when things inevitably went as we did not plan? Because, you know, despite the fact that we do a lot of planning in the talent review process, even the best companies don't plan everything exactly as it happens. And so I think we had talked about this once not too long ago, JP, this idea that plans can sometimes be of little importance, but planning is essential. This active work and discipline around preparing, anticipating, responding, Talent reviews and talent planning, to use Joe's term, really help us do that. So diagnostic tool really helps us forecast what we need, what we have, and whether it mattered or not. In episode 59, the legendary Peter Block, author of Flawless Consulting and a partner of Design Learning, joined us for the podcast for what was the most intense, authentic, and at times uncomfortable conversation of the year. I say uncomfortable because Peter pushed me out of my comfort zone and challenged me to be a better, more authentic leader in real time. If you haven't listened to this conversation, buckle up. It's a wild one. So why do these skills matter to HR to be able to help move things forward, understand the relationship, consult flawlessly? 
It matters because most of lying organizations' expectation of HR is too low. Would you please handle those things that we don't have time? Would you please organize compensation? Do performance reviews? Would you do talent acquisition, which is the weirdest two words I've ever heard, as if we're shopping for people? And we, and they, anyway, and so that's too small a version because all of those can be automated and will be and have. And so to me, what matters with HR is what impact are you having? And why is this place different? Because you were there. And it's not because of our administrative skills. It's because we have a neutral way of showing up that helps line management live out their own intentions, which is the only purpose of a consultant. It's not to deliver expertise or be right, get the job done. It's to help people around us live out their intentions. And that's the real, those HR people that know that are powerful and they're not waiting for a seat at the table. They are the table. Next up is the brilliant and business-focused Chris Scalia, Chief Human Resources Officer of the Hershey Company. And in episode 62, Talent is the Ultimate Value Creator. He runs a clinic on how HR leaders should be thinking about unlocking talent and creating capacity for change. Before you listen to this one, grab a pen because I can guarantee you, you'll be taking notes. From your perspective, Chris, what are those fundamental systems or processes that an organization has to have to get talent in place and to win? We have really advanced workforce analytics at Hershey, something that I'm very proud of, but also something that has generated such incredible understanding of what's going on with our talent. When we looked at this trap capacity, here's what we discovered. Number one, missing information on why people were doing the work in the first place was a major capacity barrier. People not understanding how their contribution drove the business forward. Two, wasting time for the simple reason that time is life's currency. And if I'm wasting it, I'm actually sending you a message that I don't respect you or respect your time, the currency of your life. Three, unclear work accountabilities and success requirements. So these were barriers to sustained high performance for people and for teams. And then lastly, low energy, typically from ineffective leadership or skills gaps in roles. So our team stepped back and said, we're really going to get the maximum amount of value out of this investment of talent. What do we need? And you'll be surprised at some of the answers. First, a strategic narrative, a central problem statement that has a solution with an extreme benefit for both Hershey and our people. We have to have that strategic narrative. The HR capability in that space is all about goal and performance management. The business benefit, though, is alignment and decision-making. And for people, it's clarity and its purpose. So the strategic narrative has such incredible power for unlocking that capacity. A few others, continuous listening. We have credible continuous listening capability using advanced analytics. Allows us to dialogue with our people in real time, no matter where they are. Again, of course, from a business benefit, we're getting a very actionable people insight. But what our talent is getting is a direct voice in shaping our strategies and actually how we run this business. I love that. Another is work design and skill building. Of course, workforce planning, talent development and management, the way that we attract talent, our leadership development programming, all of that goes to this idea of work design. And of course, the business benefit is we have cost and capability management that we can actually focus on and put into our strap plan. And for talent, it's the ability to create an impact and to innovate. So many people are talking about the skills gap right now, JP. I'm not sure that's the right question. I think the question is, how are we going to learn and relearn so we can innovate faster? And I just discontinue when I'm listening to folks who say that the future is skills. I just skip that part of the podcast sometimes. Maybe to my own peril. We'll see. The last one would be teaming. Teaming is all about being intentional. And I always say to our folks, look, we need a team of visionaries, of pragmatists, 
and of course of geeks. And the visionaries, they know what's possible. The geeks know how to do what's possible. And the pragmatists tell us what we shouldn't do, what's too much. I think the business benefit in that situation with teaming is explosive high performance. And for people and for our talent, the benefit is the energy to not only drive performance, but also inclusion and belonging. Think about all the great teams you've been on. When you were part of it, you were part of it forever. Last but not least is episode 60, Insights in the Future of HR. This is the episode where we flipped the script and Melanie Steinbach and Justin Hirsch interviewed me. If you're a fan of the podcast, you know that at the end of every episode, I ask my signature question. What is one word or phrase that will define the future of HR in the next five to 10 years? Well, in this clip, you can hear my answer to the question. JP, one of the many things your podcast is known for is your signature closing question. And both Mel and I are thrilled after a year and 50 plus podcasts, you've gotten 50 plus words to answer this question. So here goes, JP. Your turn. What is the one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Pressure right now to come up with a word that is different after 52 plus amazing guests. And honestly, it's pretty simple. It's AI. But not the AI you think about. Authentic influence. I believe HR is coming to its own I believe more and more CEOs, leaders are going to appreciate authentic value or function, our authentic passion for leading the business, for learning the business, our passion for the employee experience, our passion for creating a high-performance culture that's diverse, inclusive, and fosters a belonging, authentic in our passion for developing people's careers. And being authentic means embracing what makes HR unique from all other functions. And if we do this, We'll have authentic influence, influence in how we shape the company's strategy, influence the challenge, the status quo, and influence to make the impact that only HR can make. Well, that wraps up what was an amazing 2023 for the Future of HR podcast. I'm looking forward to an even better 2024 and continuing my mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders, one conversation at a time. Thank you for all your support and being part of our community. We'll talk to you in 2024.